Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. When it comes to your finances, go for the credit card that's always there for you. With 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. Real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. I'm Gary O'Reilly. And I'm Chuck Nice. And this is Playing With with Science. Science. Yes, there are those of us who like a quiet life. Those of us who live vicariously, and then there are those of us who seem to have an unhealthy lack of fear. And that's exactly where we are headed. The outer limits and extreme sports. Yeah, and who better to tell us what it's like to fly at Mach 2.6, be shot on purpose, and go swimming without a wetsuit at the North Pole. That man is here with us, and that man is none other than Jim Clash. Yes. I like the way it sounds. Don't Clash, you yeah. Jim Clash. Oh, no, that's Marvel hero. Um, <laughs> that's not all, yes. And helping us to understand what drives someone like Jim. We'll also hear later on from neuroscientist Heather Berlin and from extreme sports psychologist Dr. Eric Breimer. Yes. But joining us right now, right here in studio, as I said, adventurer... Jim Clash. Whoa, Jim, yeah. what's happening, buddy? How are you? Yeah, it's, it's, it's Thanks, Chuck. To... Thanks, Gary. You guys have so much energy. I feel like I have to match you. Oh, oh no, listen, man. It's a kind of. I mean, Jim Clash sounds a little bit James Bond. It's, yeah, it's, it's such a real name. Because uh, for a man who is truly an adventurer, to have the name. Jim Clash really sounds like it's kind of a stage name. You know, I've been asked that question many times, and and the answer is yes. That's my real name. My you know my parents' surname was was Clash, and uh, oh, that's fabulous. That's, you know, I'm lucky. They knew it. They knew what they knew. You, they knew what you were destined for. We checked for. it out. It's quite apparently. It's quite a rare English name from medieval times of East London. So. Uh, yeah, good for you. Very cool. Very All cool. Right. You're a long-time journalist. Mm. Uh, you've been working with Forbes for some time, rather than to carbon date you. We'll just go with some time. <laughs> a long time. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but you're into the adventure. I mean, we listed a couple of things there. You've flown in a MiG-25 to the edge of space at 2.6 times the speed of sound. Yeah. Wow. Mm. Right there. Okay. Yeah. That right there. That'll do. That's a show. And thank you. Thank you. Good night. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. That's Sorry. our show. Swimming without a wetsuit at the North Pole. Okay. But you then went and skied to the South Pole. Yeah, I've skied to the South Pole. Yeah. Which that was a lot tougher than swimming at the North Pole. Di- I, mean, I mean, without stating the obvious, it's a very different place altogether. Yeah. It is. It is. All right. Let's, let's go back to the MiG 2.5, flying at 2.5 times the speed of sound. Yeah. All right. Being in a MiG jet. First of all, how does that come about? Secondly, what the hell was that like? I mean, is it is it better than sex? Tell the truth. Uh, no. Thank God. <laughs> oh, thank you, God. Because uh, it looks like it is. Anyone else surprised <laughs> that we went there? <laughs> really? <laughs> so anyway, go ahead, uh, Jim. How did that come about? Seriously, I mean, that's a that's a crazy thing to be able to I do. I mean, who do you know? Well, at the, t- at the time, I was be- working on a big story about space tourism, uh-huh. and this was in the late 90s, and you could actually fly for a fee in a MiG-25 Foxbat up to 84,000 feet above the Earth. Oh, that was the old Clint Eastwood <laughs> movie, wasn't it? Was it that Firefox, that kind of thing? Yeah, and, and you're, you're, you're literally, um, I can tell you, um, you know, Forbes paid for it. It was uh, part of an adventure story for them. Uh, we we got a reduced rate uh, versus what the the commercial rate is, but the actual flight was a, a life changing experience for me because when you get up 
to 84,000 feet, you can see the curvature of the Earth, you can see the atmosphere hanging over the Earth, right. and you can literally see the blackness of space. Wow. And this, this MiG-25 flight is the reason I want to go into space. Ah, which brings us to the next thing now that you might as well segue into it. You actually own a ticket for Virgin Galactic's uh, space tourism. Chuck uh, and I were trying to... Sort of like tease you into handing it over. Yeah, man. Naming your price, but yes. you're holding on tight. I would. So, so you see the you see the blackness of space. You see the the tentative nature of our planet because yeah. you're looking at the atmosphere, and it's very very um, uh, evident that this is you know a small covering that coats our Earth and keeps us from this vastness that we are traveling in called space. And then you say, hey, I think I'll go there. <laughs> One thing I have to say about what you just said about the atmosphere is when you get up there, it is it is like the um, skin on an apple. It's, yeah. it's incredibly thin. Yeah. And you realize that that's the only thing protecting us. And you realize we don't want to screw it up. So now, you haven't always done that sort of scale of things. You've sort of done things like figure skate with Sasha, our friend. Sasha yeah, Cohen. Friend of the show, Sasha Cohen. And then Cohen. stood in a bull ring and came out the worse for wear because of a bull. That's true. Uh, I've done some stupid things. Uh, the bull is probably the dumbest thing. The PBR asked me if I wanted to be a bullfighter, or basically a rodeo clown. When the rider is thrown off a bull, he's vulnerable. So you yeah. want these guys to, to get the bull. Exactly. And I dangerous, went out. super dangerous. It is dangerous. And I, they asked me if I wanted to do it for a story and bet, and bet as a bullfighter. And I said, okay. And uh, I ended up with a uh, well broken three ribs. Oh my! Yeah, yeah. The now, did that happen because you were in the barrel and the bull hit the barrel and and it went that far, or did the bull hit you? No, no. What happened was the bull threw the rider, and there were three of us, three bullfighters who had to distract him away from the rider. The rider ran out of the wing, ring, and when the bull got to me, we locked eyes, and I tried to run around him the way we had taught, so that I could get him to go in a circle around me. But I didn't get behind the second horn. And he just took the horn, threw it into my back, oh. broke my ribs, threw me up in the air about four feet, and slammed me against the wall. He must have uh, And then he came in. Well, he came in for... The gore. Yeah, and, and the other two got him away from me. So I was lucky. Man. I was wow, lucky. Man. Somebody up there loves you. Yeah, but that was the stupidest thing I think I've ever done. In terms of the figure skating with Sasha... That was supposed to be a fun story. You know, Forbes Adventure goes figure skating with yeah. Olympic silver medalist. And I'm um, friends of Sasha now. Um, but at the time, uh, the deal was I would take her out in a Lamborghini and she would drive fast because she wanted to learn how to drive fast, which is something else I do. Yes. And uh, so she got the Lambo up to about 130 on the 405 in California. So that was supposed to be the dangerous part of the, of the, of the story. The other part was she would teach me to figure skate. Right. So we went to the Elysio. Had you skate? No, I'd never been on skates in my life. Oh my God! If this story ends up with you breaking three ribs, I'm gonna die. No, I'm joking. <laughs> We're gonna laugh. <laughs> Actually, it's it's worse. Oh, um, good. Um, she had me out on the ice, and she was a very good teacher. Uh, and I asked, I want to learn how to do a simple spin. Oh. And uh, so she told me to to reach back as if I'm going to punch somebody, and swing, and you'll magically go around. So the first time I tried, I, you know, I was clumsy and everything. She goes, no, you really have to commit yourself. So I swung my arm around, and the next thing you know, I was in an ambulance. And that's, I don't remember anything. Oh. My <laughs> skates got caught up, and I fell on my head on the ice. Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, but you're here, so I can laugh. Yeah, yeah you can laugh now. At the time, the time. Yeah, ice is very, very it's, unforgiving it's, it's, to the head. It's basically like pavement. It's as hard yes. as pavement. And I'll tell you something. Coming out of that, I have this tremendous respect for figure skaters because what they do, they make look simple, but it's dangerous. Yep. And it's difficult. So I know. Did, I saw I, Tanya, did. and I got to tell you, my life is never going to be the same. <laughs> that was more to do with the tutu and the sequence. But we did a show featuring Sasha, and wait, we Sasha. had the footage. Wait, oh, I just somebody just told me in my we ear. We had the footage. We had the footage of Jim. Oh my God, we do. All right. So for those of you who are listening, oh, a little right. too hard. Oh! Oh my God! You kissed the. Oh, wait ice. a minute. Who was that from Forbes magazine that put his head down just like I've lost my greatest adventurer writer ever? <laughs> well, I remember poor Sasha. You know, again, she I don't remember anything. But later on, you know, her mom told me that Sasha was really upset. And yeah. you no, know, but the you know, we made lemonade with lemons. We become very good friends. 
I was actually um, at the shoot where you guys did her recently um, yeah. on, on Playing yeah. With Science. We, we, did the, we did the show featuring Sasha, and I've never been the biggest figure skating fan. What I did yes. was I walked out of the studio and went, unbelievable yeah. respect and understanding for not just the science and the physics, but for everything. The athleticism and the, yeah, the, the determination, everything, the everything that goes into becoming it's a serious an, sport. I'd never taken it really that seriously as a sport. Oh, However, I came out of there with a totally different point of view. Yeah. It totally changed my approach to figure skating. And, for, and so when you, know, when, when you say what you say, I absolutely get it. So forgive me. I hate to, uh, to dwell on your pain, Jim. However. But that video... <laughs> oh my God! So for those of you who, because we were, we didn't really explain what was happening. Jim was doing what he said he was doing, which was reaching back and trying to get the uh, the, the spin yeah. and get the momentum to to do the spin. The thing is, when he wrapped his arm around his body, it left him in a position where he fell. And of course, your natural inclination when you fall is to put your arms out to break your fall. His arms were in such a position that he could not reach out for the ice to break his fall. He goes down and goes down full force yeah. on his face. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. It's it's and, and listen. If you want to see it, you can go online or you can go to StarTalkAllAccess.com and 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 look at it. But my God, man, have you ever been on skates since? Because that would have been my one and only time on skates. No, as a matter of fact, um, a couple weeks later, a package arrived at Forbes, and within the package was a skate, and it was a skate that they took off of my foot, and it was signed, "Oh, Jim, you crazy adventure! What does not kill you makes you stronger." Love, Sasha Cohen. Oh, and I still have that skate in my office, and uh, do, it reminds yeah. me of never going back out and skating. Yeah, man. Okay, so you've you've driven Bugatti Veyrons at two hundred plus, two hundred fifty plus miles yeah, an hour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What next? What's all right? Space we get is the given. What's what else? What's the top three for an adventurer? What's the top three bucket list? I gotta do that, dude, for you and is for there everybody. Left? <laughs> well, this is the is problem. Something it's, left. I mean, this is a problem. You know, I mean, I've I've flown in an F fifteen. I've flown yeah. in the Mig. I've climbed the Matterhorn. I've uh, been shot point blank with a thirty eight. And that wasn't uh, that that wasn't the worst thing. Being shot with. Wait, a do we have that video, guys? Because <laughs> I gotta tell you, I'm thinking ice skating yeah, and being shot. Let uh -huh. me let me just say this, Jim. Uh, as a black man, I was watching you live my worst nightmare. Jeez, <laughs> <laughs> oh, Chuck. <laughs> but at least, at least I had a, a high fashion ballistics garment on, which protected me. As long yeah. as it's high fashion, yeah. Well, they—they they, you saw the leather coat in the video. It's—it's—it's yes. it's, it's, it's sold for seven thousand dollars at Harrods. And a lot of big-name people wear these things. Right. You don't even know that they're ballistics clothing because they're made so high fashion. Now, here's the thing. I want to know about that. I, I don't know if we have this video, but even the audio from the video itself will be compelling. So let me just explain to people what we're talking about. Uh, Jim is with the manufacturer, and you can see the uh, workers in the background of the video mm. constructing these garments. And Jim is standing there. Is that the owner of the company you were with, that gentleman? Yes, Miguel, okay. Miguel Caballero, and he's the guy who shot me. Yes. So he's standing there with the owner, Miguel Caballero, right. and um, point-blank people. I am not talking about like these videos that you see where a guy has a rifle or a gun from across the room. He is literally, he puts the gun like right in your solar plexus and pulls the trigger. And I screamed. I screamed at the video. I swear. I was just like, oh my God. But then I was like, oh wait, Chuck, you just saw him last week. You know he's alive. <laughs> but it's, it is, first, I want to know. Did you see somebody test this out, number one? And number two, what the frick is wrong with you? Why would you let somebody shoot you a point And, and number range? three, <laughs> I can't <laughs> remember all these questions. you to get insured? <laughs> okay, that's, okay three. that's well, a good question. Insurance, <laughs> did you see it work out before you did it? And what the hell would make you let somebody shoot you at point blank range? Okay, well, you know, there's always an element of risk in these adventures. I try to minimize it. Uh, and I know that when I'm going to do a story, most of these companies 
they don't want a journalist getting killed or hurt, so they, they take extra precautions. I had seen people get shot on videos. He normally shoots his workers once in a while to get them motivated. Yes, that is motivation, motivated. by the way. What 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 they're what they're what, making? What you want? What they're making? They better be right about making it right. Yeah. Um, the thing I did though, normally when he shoots somebody, is he puts an extra uh, layer of Kevlar there so they don't feel anything. But I wanted to take the shot as you would with a jacket no Kevlar, and he said he'd only done that one other time and he had broken the guy's ribs when he did it. So he said he was going to shoot me between my ribs and my hip in a, you know, the fatty area Solid there. Area. Yeah. Yeah. And um, it made sense to me. Uh, I have to tell you, it hurt. It hurt a lot. It was like someone took a bullwhip and you got the very end of it, the burning sensation yeah. when it hit you. And then it was like a Mike Tyson punch. Yeah, and by the way, at the uh, when you when you were shot, uh, immediately after you went like this, which I have the utmost respect for you because my reaction would have been like, ah! Ah! okay, that would have been my reaction. And your reaction was, it burns. That's exactly, and that's exactly how he says it. See, that was the he says it just like this. He goes like this. It burns. Because he's got, he's got some British blood in him. And it's Gosh, like, right? very understated. Unbelievable. Yes, that burns. However, you then lifted up your, uh, your shirt and dude, it looked like somebody beat you with a baseball bat. There's like a huge, um, wow. like divot in, in, well, your, in your in your torso. It got bigger over time, and I'd say I had that. Uh, maybe it got about this big. Wow. And I had that for a couple of weeks. Um, did you get to keep the jacket? I did. Good. Uh, Sweet. Seven grand. Uh, it has I a get... little hole in it. The nicest thing was though, he let me keep the bullet, which was pancaked inside the in the jacket. Nice. Um, the physics of that, I'm sure, is very interesting. Yeah. And um, sure. and uh, the rosary that I wore around my neck when Sweet. I when I took the shot. <laughs> exactly. So, well, I mean, wow. Apart from the fact that Forbes say we'll pay you to do these crazy, what we would consider this side of the studio, crazy things. Where does your mind go? Is it like I can't wait? Or is it fear, or do you go, right, I need to prepare. I need to have a, a real firm grip on the science. I need to have a real firm grip on how, why, what, where, particularly if you're going to go up in a MIG, if you're going to do these things at speed, you'll be thinking tire pressures, tire compounds, reaction times, what are the forces? I mean, if you're doing 250 miles an hour, the G-force on you, you must be a G-force junkie, by the way, you just how much of it do you get into and prepare for? I have to say, many people have asked me that question, and, and it's almost like an actor in a play. I feel like I am um, this actor. That's not really me getting in the car. That's not really me getting in the MIG, climbing the Matterhorn. They say a lot of actors are very shy outside of um, being on the stage or whatever. And, and I think I'm a pretty normal, shy person. It's just that I, you know, I, I put myself in that position. I'm an actor. I have to do a story. You're right. I prepare like hell for these things because you know you got to be on you got to have that adrenaline going uh, you got to channel the fear make it uh, positive uh, but if you prepare and you know that you've done as much as you can you you're able to to get through the fear if, if you don't prepare and you're not you, sure what you how want. do you sit there and say i'm gonna get shot or that how how much is that bull weigh? Three, four, four hundred pounds. No, no, it weighs about well, two, two thousand pounds. Right. So the, <laughs> I was making the point. So thank you. How now, do you prepare to swim yeah, so in the your, North Pole? Because I got to tell you the truth. Breath. I, I saw you do that, and I'm just like, no way I would do that. The shrinkage alone would scare me off. Seinfeld episode. I always talk about that. I still think I have problems, and that was twenty years ago, eighteen years ago. So no, the thing. Um, the thing what was your mechanism? <laughs> What what mechanism did you personally employ? Because it won't always work for the for the same you know for everybody. So some of it's peer pressure. You go in, you know that you've got to do a job. There's a lot of people that are prepared. For example, the car. Yeah. I did the 253 in the Bugatti Veyron. I had spent four years working up to that. We had had canceled things because of weather, this and that. So I was really committed. Yeah. The thing that scared me was when we did the preliminary runs. There was a professional driver in the right hand seat. I was in the left hand seat as the driver. When we went to do the top speed run, he wouldn't get in the car. And I said, why not? And he goes, better one of us than both of us. Because oh, well, that's, that'll instill confidence. Well, hey, thanks a lot, Dad. No, no, no. Hey. <laughs> but as you said, you're pushing all the parts to the absolute limit. The tires expand. Mm. You know, 
everything in that car is pushed to its limit. If something's going to break, it's going to break right at that then. Point. The other thing you got to worry about is any animals coming across the track. Oh, now, a bird, if a bird flies over, it's probably going to go through the windshield. Yeah. If you hit uh, any kind of an animal, it throws you off kilter. There's no room for air. Stay you're out, you're rubble on the side. You've got to stay on yeah. the clean. You're, the you're in a passenger car. A passenger car at that speed is no matter. I had a suit on, helmet. It's not going to protect you. You're no. you're toast. Yeah. In a race car, and I've driven those before. You can survive yeah. a crash. You yeah. see it all the time in the IndyCar. Made for it. The cage, the cage itself yeah. is designed to withstand what, that kind at of. At those sort of speeds, what sort of distance are you covering per second? At the, in the Bugatti, I was I was doing a football field and a quarter per second. Oh. Two hundred miles an hour is a football <laughs> field a second. So, all right, so just, listen, we got to take a big. Just imagine that in one second, that distance. I know. Oh, that's amazing. So wait, we gotta we gotta take a break. We're gonna we be have. joined by Heather Berlin, but I want to know this from you because I, I believe this. You're either a speed guy or an experienced guy. The experienced guy is the is the climber, whether it's like you know rock climbing or or Everest, you know, uh, or and uh, <clears throat> uh, you know standing on the precipice, looking out, going, "Wow, I've done this." And the speed person is is like the thrill, like. Oh yeah. Which one? Which one are you? I'm both because oh. because the thrill is 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 the same in the end. When you're standing on top of say the Matterhorn or Aconcagua, Kilimanjaro, whatever, there's this tremendous feeling of I did that, I accomplished it. Um, when you drive the top speed right afterwards, you're like I did it, I did it safely, I'm here. Um, you do get more of a quick adrenaline rush yeah. when you're doing the 253 in the Bugatti. It's a lot more satisfying long-term when you when you have to climb yeah. a mountain and it takes How long does weeks. it take you? And I don't, this is not a pun about mountain climbing. How long does it take you to come down after events like that? You know, it depends. Um, but there's always a come down, and that's always a problem. Um, Interesting. You know, yeah. it, 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 you know, each time you do an adrenaline uh, experience, you've got to do a, get a little more adrenaline to get the same effect. Right. And that's a problem with what oh, I you do. Chase yeah. You chase it. Well, that's, that. that's exactly why I don't... Um, mm. I used to have a little Ducati. I, do, I no longer do because my wife made me sell it. Because Good choice of bike, uh, right? and like that's why I asked where you were because I'm a speed guy. Like for me, how fast did you go in the Ducati? Oh God, I think the fastest I ever did was like a buck seventy. A buck seventy on a, a motorcycle. A buck sixty something. You're, you're, that's a lot scarier than two fifty in in a Bugatti. Oh, but let me tell you something. It's uh, all I can tell you is this: it's not scary at all because it's the only time in my life where nothing. Like the chatter, shut up. Like the chatter. Uh, uh, anybody who knows me can tell that I'm a little bit like squirrel. Like there's there's a little of that in me. Anybody who knows me can see that. That's the only time ever in my entire life where without trying, the, all the chatter, silent. Just silent. And so, you know, it wasn't scary at all. I just, all right. But anyway, enough about me. Uh, uh, <laughs> that's why I asked because yeah. the, the deal is if I climbed a mountain, when I got to the top, I would be like, oh, crap, we got we to gotta go down. Well, no, 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 but that is the thing. When you get to the top, uh, if, for example, the Matterhorn, very scary climb, took us six hours. We rushed to get to the top. Coming down took me 10 hours. It's much more difficult coming down. down. You've burned up all your energy. Uh, um, I mean, it, it's, it's where 80% of the Experience tells you to, to that you've you've consumed an awful lot of energy, expanded yeah. mental, yeah, of course, physical. Yeah. You've got to be very sensible on the descent. And eighty percent of all fatalities and accidents happen on the descent. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. On the that cheery oh, note, we'll take that break. Um, yeah, wow. Right. What, a, what an adventure story with Jim Clash, right? Dr. Heather Berlin up next. Don't go away. Squirrel. Sleep. Grocery shopping. Themselves. Just a few things working moms seldom have time for. And during tax season, you can add taxes to their list. So for all you working moms, make the easy switch to H&R Block and have an expert make easy work of your taxes. H&R Block guarantees your taxes are 100% accurate and your max refund or your money back. Plus, with their no surprise guarantee, you'll always know the price of your tax prep before you begin. You can even have an H&R Block Tax Pro do your taxes in a block office or online from the comfort of your own home. Can your current tax guy promise all that? 
When you're buried under life's to-dos, let the experts at H&R Block stay on top of your taxes with a return that's right on the money and your biggest refund possible. Because tax season after tax season, it's better with Block. Make an appointment at hrblock.com. All tax situations are different. Not everyone gets a refund. Limitations apply. Descriptions of benefits and details at hrblock.com guarantees. Whether you're a family vacation traveler, business tripper, or long weekend adventurer, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. And that's good, because there are a lot of me's. Choice Hotels has over 7,400 locations and 22 brands, including Comfort Hotels, Radisson Hotels, and Cambria Hotels. Get the best value for your money when you book with Choice Hotels. Cambria Hotels feature locally inspired hotel bars with specialty cocktails and downtown locations in the center of it all. Hey, that's me. Radisson Hotels have flexible workspaces to get the most of your business travel and on-site restaurants. That's me, too. And at Comfort Hotels, you'll enjoy free hot breakfast with fresh waffles, great pools for the entire family, and spacious rooms. Hey, that's me, too. I guess I'm just going to have to stay at all of them. Choice Hotels has a stay for any of you. Book direct at choicehotels.com, where travel comes true. Welcome back. I'm Gary O'Reilly. And I'm Chuck Nice. And this is Playing With Science. And today, we're all about extreme sports. Extreme. Yes. <laughs> we didn't just do that, did we? Sorry, we did. Uh, right, still with us is adventurer, adventure writer, Jim Clash, a man who has a list of so many envious things He's on his He's a walking, fulfilled bucket list. Oh, he is. That's what Jim oh, is. He is, yeah. Well, thank you, guys. I yeah, mean, no, uh, sure. I never think of myself that way, but sure, why yeah, not? All the stuff that people dream of doing before they die, you actually do it while you're walking around living. So that's awesome. And I don't know what that's. I don't know what I just said because it'd be kind of hard to do it while you're dead in the ground, wouldn't it? I just like it that I'm still around. <laughs> we do <laughs> too. How's that sound? Right, introduce our next guest. And uh, join a friend us. of ours. Oh uh, yeah, friend of the show and Star Talk All Star, <gasps> and our resident neuroscientist, Dr. Heather Berlin, is with us. Yes. Hello, Doc. Hello. Hey. Good to have you with us. So, okay. So yeah. Right, straight off, what's going on in his head? Yeah, we're going to pick apart Jim's brain right now. I don't know if there's anything in there. He's flown at 84,000 feet at 2.6 Mach. He's jumped into a barrel and got his ribs broken by a 1,000-pound bull. Uh, Done all sorts of things, driven at 253 miles. Skied at the South Pole. Yes. Um, You know, seen the blackness of space from the edge of the Earth's atmosphere. Uh, Jumped jumped out of a plane. Uh, This guy's done everything. What is going on? neurologically in the mind of somebody who is, did who, those things and does wants these to go of, back and do other things right, and still. keeps doing them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's a few things. I mean, first is to say that not everybody who um, likes to take risks, there's not one sort of um, prescription in terms of what's happening in the brain. It could vary for different people. Ooh. So there are different types of risk taking some do it because they're actually chronically compared to someone who, let's say, doesn't take risks, understimulated. And so they need more just to get the same feeling of excitement that we might get from, I don't know, you know, driving in your car at 80 miles an hour or something. For someone that might give them a little rush, whereas for him that might be nothing and he needs more to get the same level of activation to feel the excitement. So that's actually, you have to kind of find out the personality of the person first and what drives them to then understand what the neural basis of that is. So I guess the question I'd have is, um, to your guess, is he, are you doing these things um, because you're getting a high out of them? And when you do other things, do you not feel that same level of excitement that whereas other people might feel that? So, Jim, that's to you, uh, which is a question we did not ask you. Is there a high involved? And uh, do you feel understimulated when you're not doing these things? The thing is, um, it's my job. I'm an adventure writer, so I go out and I do it. And as I said earlier, I'm an actor. I see myself as an actor getting in the car at 250 miles an hour, whatever. Um, I don't think before I started doing this stuff uh, that I was understimulated. But the problem is the more you do it, the more the adrenaline rush comes on, yeah. the more adrenaline you need to do it, and um, the more 
regular everyday things become blasé. Same with all the people I've interviewed from John Glenn to Buzz Aldrin to Neil Armstrong. You interview these people and then, you know, you go home and, and uh, uh, to your wife and, and suddenly it's not John Glenn or it's not uh, Neil Armstrong. So, the thing is, once so there, you go there, you know it's there. Yeah, you know it's there and, and it takes more and more to to get the same high. I think it's like a drug. Uh, I'm, yeah. I'm sure Heather, Heather can talk more about well, that. It's but. funny. I was just about to ask this. Yeah. So, Heather, and here's and, – and you can break down the neuroscience behind um, whether or not this mimics the characteristics of addiction. But um, I also want to know, can the brain's reaction and chemical reactions actually lead to a person coming back to this like a drug? So, yeah. so one, tell us how it is like a drug, if it is, and two, what, how does it make you want more like a drug? Okay, so I'm going to, as I said, it's very nuanced. There's no one answer, but I'm going to break it down to simplify it into two categories of types of risk takers. One is the type where we, it's, it's genetic predisposition. Mm -hmm. There are certain people that are born with a certain type of um, gene that codes for a serotonin receptor, where if you have this, you're more likely to be a risk taker or to be impulsive, right? Or to go for immediate pleasure, despite what the negative consequences are. So most of us are risk averse. We outweigh the risks of something um, which will hold us back and make us more conservative. Other people who may be genetically predisposed are more likely to go for the immediate reward despite the risks. That's one type of person. Okay. Then you can have someone where it's a sort of learned behavior. And now the prefrontal cortex, when it's very active, that makes us be a little bit more conservative, thinking about the future consequences of our actions. If you have damage to the prefrontal cortex, if it's underactive, um, the various different states where then you become more risk-taking. Mm -hmm. Okay. You, you, you're less inhibited. So what happens, though, when you're in a, a high-stakes situation, there's a certain kind of neurochemical response. There's a subcortical part of your brain, evolutionarily older, the reward center of your brain, where you get this hit of dopamine. It's the pleasure center of the yeah, brain. Yes. Now, if you implant electrodes there, and let's say a rat can self-stimulate by pressing a lever that actually stimulates that part of the brain directly, right. they'll choose to press that lever and self-stimulate and get that feeling of reward over sex if they're sex-deprived, food if they're food-deprived, water if they're water-deprived, to the point of exhaustion. So it's really a very powerful um, urge to have that feeling over everything, and this is the circuitry involved in addiction. So what we find is that people can develop what's called behavioral addictions, like pathological gamblers, people who get a high from stealing, um, internet addiction, where you start getting, you can sort of self-stimulate that part of the brain, and then you want to get that hit again. Don't don't and forget don't don't forget sexaholics, please, please. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. They get the, the sex sex addiction, and so what happens is then just like with drugs, you habituate. So at first, you know that first time, I don't know, you climb a free climb a mountain or something, you're going to get this extreme high. But then maybe by the tenth time you do it, it feels a little bit um, more blasé. So then you need to up the ante. You need to do something other. You know, maybe now you climb the mountain. Um, you know, with, with no net underneath or whatever it may be. So each time as your brain habituates, you need more and more stimulation to get that feeling of, of that, that activation, that dopamine hit. Uh, and so I think that's what's perhaps happening in this case where, you know, he just started doing it a part of his job, but then over time it became behavioral addiction and that the regular things in life are so blasé in comparison and you need to seek more and more to get that high. So, but unlike an addiction, which uh, often causes reckless behavior because um, uh, there are two things involved. One, the reasoning area of your brain is affected by the drug. And so, you know, and two, you are just so focused on that, like you'll do anything to get that thing. Jim takes a great deal of precautionary measures. He does a lot of research. Exactly. He's uh, very measured in his approach to it. Um, can you explain how those two things happen at the same time? So as I said there, so that's a really good point. So there are these two categories of people, I would say. I mean, obviously a little bit more nuanced than that, but roughly speaking, the ones who lack impulse control 
other ones that have like, let's say, damaged the prefrontal cortex or genetic predisposition or under activation, the prefrontal cortex, where they're more, they're less thoughtful in the risks that they're taking. Ah. Okay? So they're less measured. They, they don't have as much control. It's like they, they see that, you know, piece of chocolate cake and they have to go for it right away. They can't withhold responding. Get in my Whereas, belly. Okay. Sorry. Right. <laughs> Whereas in this other case, which, which he seems to be more like, is that um, you have perfectly good control of the prefrontal cortex. You can be very measured. You can take all the right um, precautions. You're not doing it impulsively, right? But yet the you still need to find that fix, right? Even if it's in a very um, thoughtful way, wow. ultimately you're still going for that risk. I mean, you can even think about it with performers, right? You know, you as a, as a comedian, you get on stage, you get a bit of that hit of dopamine, right? When you're on stage. And so some people will choose to perform, you know, over everything over when they're, even if they're not making money at it, you know, if they're, they're having to live in a crappy studio apartment for years, because that high of being on the stage is so important. is so, is so stimulating. Has somebody been talking to you about my life? <laughs> hey, hey, wait a minute. This happens with journalists too. Okay. It's not, it's not just comedians. But the thing is, the thing is here, if you've got somebody who can control the way that they approach this, but they are ultimately competitive, how does that skew the whole situation. Oh, because competition, can that be a drug in and of itself? The, I mean, that, that, then adds, that then adds another fuel yeah. to the dopamine rush. Absolutely. And I think that, that, I mean, competition is a huge factor that gives you that hit of adrenaline, you know, try, trying to win. And that's evolutionarily old drive, right? You know, mm. competing. But the thing is, it can cause you to do stupid things sometimes. People take risks that are, let's say if you're doing something just to get the high, you might do it with some risk. But now if you're competing against somebody else, you might try to up the ante. And this is where people end up, you know, dying in extreme sports, right? Because they keep pushing and pushing and because it's so competitive yeah. that they might get to places where it does become really dangerous. And that is sort of what's pushing them over the edge, that drive to 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 compete. And everyone's upping the ante. Wow. Then you end up people falling off mountains and dying when they're, you know, um, rock climbing and those kinds of things. Okay, well, you haven't fallen off a mountain yet. No. I hope that remains that case. Right. But you have something to... Yeah, I, I like that, Heather, about the competition because I know sometimes I'm out there in a race car school uh, or a drag racing school and first it becomes just about being able to do it. But then you want to, you know, you want the best time, you want the fastest speed, you want this, the quickest lap around the track and that can lead to recklessness. Um, I've been lucky so far, I haven't had any accidents, but again, the competitive drive is there. Well, See, for you as a writer, a, you have a great prefrontal cortex, Jim. That's <laughs> I hope, the deal, man. See, as a writer, I hope, I hope that prefrontal cortex wasn't injured when I fell sk figure skating with Sasha. <laughs> Believe it or not, <laughs> right, Heather? That head injury could have affected him, where he could become a reckless person. <laughs> I hope he, not. He's kind of lucky, right? See, as a writer, your yeah. drive may not be to break a world record. You know, I'm going to run faster than Usain Bolt. I'm going to throw a javelin further than someone else. I need a scoop. I need the big story. Right? I'm an adventure writer. What adventure can I have that takes me above and beyond, sets a, sets a story that no one else is going to touch for decades? Well, and, and one thing is you never quite know where the story's going to be. Yeah. I was down in South Africa not too long ago, and I, I took a ride in a, uh, an English Electric Lightning, and the oh, pilot geez. put me through a, a bunch of... Uh, can you tell us what that is? I mean, for those who don't oh, it's know it's home. It's a supersonic I mean, uh, plane. Be, it's a supersonic it's a, plane. It's a Delta Wing aircraft. It's called a what 60s. now? Yeah, and it's called English Electric Lightning. Lightning. English Electric Lightning. Yeah, and and the pilot took me through a series of horrific aerobatic moves, which made me get really sick. And afterwards, we landed the plane, and I was angry at him. And I said, why did you do it? And he gave me some reason. He said, are you going to stick around for the air show tomorrow? And I said, no, I've got to go back and do another adventure in Cape Town. That night, the next night, I read in the paper that there was a crash at the air show. It was him, and he died. And the plane was totally destroyed. And that was the last, I was the last person to fly in that plane with him. 
and it was hydraulics failure. So you just never know. Again, when wow. you're when you're when your you know, your numbers up, it's up. It's See, and the moral of that story you. is: don't be a dick and make somebody sick while you should be just showing up. <laughs> oh, the plane works. All right. Okay. <laughs> oh, so there you have it. And I guess on that note, yeah, <laughs> uh, on that, oh, that's a downer. That's a downer. Let's end on an upper. It's quite literally a downer. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> thank you to Dr. Heather Berlin. Heather, um, that is awesome. Thank you. Thank yes, you, Heather. Thank you. And uh, you. oh, you're welcome. Um, Jim Clash is going to be sticking around, um, maybe with a cheerier story than the last one. Absolutely. Any luck. Right, coming up next, we have Dr. Eric Brimer, an extreme sports psychologist. We'll be back shortly. Welcome back. I'm Gary O'Reilly. And I'm still Chuck Nice. And this is still Playing, playing with, with Science. Science. Today, we're talking about extreme sports with adventure writer Jim Clash. And joining us now via Skype, extreme sports psychologist, Dr. Eric Breimer. Hey, doctor, welcome. Yes, doctor. Thank you very much. Right, you're up in Leeds University, Leeds Beckett University in the United Kingdom, and you are author of phenomenology and the extreme sport experience. Have I mangled that even with my bad English? No, that sounds pretty good. It's a good effort. <laughs> I've been patted on the head. <laughs> Fantastic. Yes, thank you, uh, Professor. So, you know, Doc, um, when we talk about phenomenology, uh, I, I suppose that means because you're looking at this from a phenomenological uh, or a phenomenological phenomenological perspective as opposed to um, you have a different interpretation of extreme sports. Everybody thinks extreme sports is just, oh, I'm on a skateboard. I'm extreme. Or, hey, I did a base jump. I'm extreme. So can you tell us what is your interpretation of or definition of extreme sports? Well, I think we're still working on a definition okay. um, because we're, you know, we're, we're moving forward from the traditional or maybe old-fashioned is a better way of looking at now perspective where extreme sports are really about risk or sort of trying to trick death or something along those lines. Um, and we're moving more into trying to understand the motivations and experiences behind undertaking something like base jumping or um, proximity flying or surfing giant waves or whatever it might be. So um, we're moving a little bit in towards creativity and we're looking at um, human nature relationships. We're trying to understand um, what what's the difference that makes a difference between somebody who is a high performance athlete in, say, a traditional sport context and somebody who is a high performance athlete in an extreme sport context. So on the surface, there's a number of obvious things that are different. One is if you mess up, you're most likely going to die in an extreme sport. Or if you don't, it's it really because you've got the skills and capacities to do something about it. So we, in, along these lines, we talk about it in a mismanaged mistake or accident would most likely result in death. But beyond that, and we're talking about the real extreme ones here. We're not talking about the skateboarding. We're talking about the the, the other, the, you know, the furthest well, end of the course, which, yeah. which, of course, is, is still evolving because... Um, uh, you know, as, as base jumping has moved into proximity flying and as, as surfers have um, started to utilize um, uh, machines to get themselves onto the bigger waves, extreme sports are evolving rapidly. Um, but the other things that are really obvious is that with traditional sports, we um, are, are um, you know, obviously the rules and regulations um, constrict, constrain what, can, what people can do. Um, they determine what what success is all about. Um, and also in traditional sports, boundaries are very heavily constrained. But within extreme sports, um, boundaries are not constrained. There is, um, uh, you, you know, you, you, it's up to you how you interact with the, with the, with the environment around you. And um, uh, there aren't any rules and regulations or external bodies that say this is what success looks like. Um, and, and therefore, if you do it like this, you're doing well. So those are the things that make them slightly different. Um, and because of those things, we're, you know, we're looking at a, an activity that is continually evolving. We're looking at something that involves creativity, cooperation, um, and, and all those wonderful things that we think are really good. And sport is supposed to um, enhance and um, so forth. But modern sport probably does that less now than adventure sports. 
Okay. So, okay. I mean, okay, doctor, do you commonly see a type of person that is predisposed to go to the extreme sport end of the spectrum? Uh, that, I think, is a really wonderful question. And that's a question that a lot of psychologists have been working on for a long time. It, it, it does link to the original kind of idea that there must be a risk-taking, thrill-seeking <laughs> kind of personality um, uh, structure that, that sort of, if you like, enforce it or forces or guides or um, uh, creates uh, um, the capacity for somebody to, under, to undertake an activity at this level. In fact, what we're finding is that there isn't one personality structure. Um, people have tried all sorts of different kind of personality measurements, mm -hmm. tried to categorize people in, in particular ways. And what we're finding is the difference, the variability is so great that we cannot say there's one particular personality structure that suggests you will go into an extreme sport. So, um, so in, yeah. in studio, we have with us Jim Clash. And uh, mm -hmm. Jim is an inventor and a uh, journalist. Jim, let, let me ask you, based upon what the... Um, uh, doctor just said, uh, would you, from your own experience, interviewing so many of these adventurers and being one yourself, is there a common thread that you've been able to um, identify, and we won't use this as empirical data for research, but just from your anecdotal experience, have you seen a common thread throughout them, and would you say that it resides within you as well? I would say most of the people I've interviewed who are extreme uh, adventurers um, all have something in common. It's called curiosity in action. Curiosity in action. Yes, and, okay. and people are very curious. I know I'm very curious about what it's like to go 250 miles an hour, uh, to climb the Matterhorn, to get shot with a 38. Uh, to me, that's, that's a curiosity I have. And if I'm interested in that and I want to know what it feels like, I take action. So uh, the one thing I can say about most people who are extreme adventurers, they're very curious. The other thing yeah. is they are not fearless people. They, they really practice, they, they research what they're going to do, and they're very smart, most of them, about what they're doing. And there's a difference between perceived risk and calculated risk, and most of these people take calculated risks. Gotcha. So, uh, uh, doctor, uh, yeah. based upon what Jim just said, um, yeah. in your empirical findings, mm -hmm. um, what kind of disposition do you see in these athletes with respect to um, personality traits? I'm talking about the athletes themselves, personal, personality traits. Um, and what you said was, I find, very, very intriguing. These are not reckless people then. OK. No. OK. So can you can you no. speak to that? Yeah. Um, I think that that sort of the idea of the reckless risk taker was the traditional understanding, and and we're definitely finding that's not the case. Um, and and what we what we actually find is that people who participate in whatever activity it is, and the more extreme it gets, um, the more important this is. They have a really deep understanding of their own capabilities and capacities, um, really profound understanding of the environment that they're moving in, or if they don't, they find out about it. That that sort of curious streak, which I I, I definitely agree with. Um, and a really deep understanding of the activity, the task that they're doing. So those three things are absolutely important. Um, and um, they're, they're vital to, a, to an extreme athlete's capacity to perform effectively. No extreme athlete wants to die. I mean, the, 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 the positive side of their activity is so powerful that doing it in a way that means they can keep doing it, they can participate again and again and again and again in different ways is really, really important. That profound relationship with the natural world, the way of being sort of part of the natural world, if you're a, if you're a, a you know, an adventure in, in nature, whether that's air, whether that's water, whether that's land, that curiosity, I think, I agree with. Um, we we're looking at it more about an embodied creativity, is what we're talking about it. Uh, but it's the same idea. The creativity used to be thought of as something you you think up of an idea and then you find a way of um, of making it happen. But what we're looking at much more now is that creativity is an embodied activity and it um, and it and it sort of it, it changes and develops and, and evolves as action happens as opposed to working it all out and then going and doing the activity so I, I would definitely agree with that notion as well you just described a jazz player man absolutely <laughs> that's a that's, jazz that's, player brother absolutely. so that's, the thing is, the thing is doctor while I'm listening to both Jim and yourself talk through I'm hearing about people who have learned to control fear, learned to control circumstances so as they have 
the knowledge and ability to deal with the environment around them. And then I think, are extreme sports actually quite good for us? Because you sound as if you're creating people who are very, very mindful of a lot of things around them and being able to control things that would normally crush others. And therefore, it has a positivity attached to it. Absolutely. And that's definitely been our argument and some of the stuff I've written about is how how good they are for health and well-being. I'm not saying that everybody should do them. Adventure has different levels and maybe adventure in, in, you know, in, a, in a lower level kind of adventure might be appropriate for everybody. But I would definitely agree with the fact that extreme sports, for those who undertake it, have, are really positive for, from a psychological, emotional and physical perspective. So um, we're, we're, we're drawing to a close here, but I, I, I want to get section, to a couple yes. things. One, uh, in the segment before, which you were not a part of, um, most unfortunately, because you're fascinating, um, we were talking about going fast, uh, and Jim was talking about driving a Veyron at 200 and something miles an hour. I myself had a um, uh, super bike for a little bit of time, and I used to drive it very fast, but for different reasons. I wasn't really seeking a thrill as mm-hmm. much as I was quieting my mind yep. because at the speeds that I traveled, if I looked the wrong way or did the wrong thing, I knew yep. I would die. Yeah, And that caused me to, for the only time in my entire life, to have a singular focus. Absolutely. Can you talk about the transcendent nature of ex- being uh, extreme? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I would definitely agree with that. And that's what we found in our research as well, is that rather than being about the thrills and excitement and so forth, that does happen, but that kind of maybe happens afterwards. The actual experience itself is very focused. It, you know, if, if you're, it, it almost facilitates that focus without you necessarily having to make it happen. The traditional mindfulness literature is about um, a proactive process where you put yourself into a mindful, um, a mindful state. Ooh. But what extreme sports do, and adventure more generally, is it facilitates that whether you are aware, aware of it or not, and. Exactly what you're saying. You you are so focused on the environment that you're in and ensuring that you're doing things effectively that things, the sociocultural kind of concerns, things just sort of fall away. But it's more than a, a I no longer have to worry about things or I'm not thinking about all the whether I've got enough money or the worries and concerns. It's much much deeper than that. And what we've called it's like a we've called it a freedom. It's a freedom from um, that sort of mental chatter, which essentially is mindfulness. Okay, oh before God, that's the exact word I use, chatter. Okay, yeah. okay. Before we we have to take a break, Doctor. Mm. There is there is a. I'll, I'll get to the end of the show. Um, green sports. Green yeah. sports. Yeah. So green, if we yeah. ta- if we take extreme sports like mountain climbing or hanging by one mm. arm off a cliff, uh, doing some really what I would call dramatic stuff out there in the environment Mm. am i right in thinking that you're proposing that the more people do that the more they'll find an environmental positivity to protect that outdoor Mm. space i love it that that extreme sport then has another fold back of positivity is that can you just enhance upon what i've just thought about there yes yeah no that's a that's a really nice thought I, i like that thought but that is what we're finding we're finding that um, the more people participate in all sorts of, um, you use the term green sport, you could call it green exercise or nature sport or whatever you'd like to do. So not necessarily mm-hmm. at the high extreme level, but the yeah. more people involved in these activities, the more they slip into um, this sort of mindful, focused um, state of, uh, that, they, that they find, which, which ultimately also enhances well-being the more likely they are to realize a deeper, more profound connection with the environment they participate in, whatever that might be. And as a result, the more likely they are to um, want to do, to give back. So it's a reciprocal kind of relationship. Fantastic. You're absolutely right. You know, both of you just made me think of every surfer cares about the ocean more than anybody Correct. you will ever meet. Yeah. So, yeah, that's fantastic. Wow, this has and been that, great. Doctor, thank yes, you. Thank you so much, Doc. I mean, Eric Weimer from Leeds Beckett University in the UK. Sports, Sports science, science, ecology. Ecology. I like it. Yeah. The Who holy sports, baby. Sport would bring you into science and ecology. There you go. Well, it has. And thank you to everybody who's been on our show today. That's it. Bye for now. Look forward to your company next time. Thank you. Ooh.